There's four basic uh, divisions. This psalm is simply known as a prayer of David. The first four verses, he prays for justice uh, for his oppressors, those that would come against him. And verses 5 and 6, which we dealt with predominantly last week, were a prayer of David asking God to help him uh, behave himself rightly, to act rightly uh, during these oppressions. And this is a prayer that maybe far too often we as, we as God's people don't often think to pray. We know we go through trials. We go through testing. But how often do we ask, Lord, help me to behave myself rightly during this trial? Help me as I'm being oppressed. Help me as I'm going through persecution, perhaps even, or uh, people that are uh, uh, coming against me. Uh, help me to keep a right attitude. Help me to have a right spirit and to behave appropriately through this thing. And so his, his prayer in verses 5 and 6 uh, were for God to help him, uh, the psalmist himself, to behave himself in the right way. Then verses 7 to 12 is prayer for protection uh, from those that would come against him. We're going to look a little bit further into these verses today. And then verses 13 to 15 is a prayer uh, that his foes can be disappointed and that he can be satisfied. And uh, so these are the, the four breakdowns. We're going to start in uh, verse number 7. This will be the third section of this psalm. <clears throat> verse 7, I know we touched on a little bit of these uh, last week, perhaps just in, in just glancing at the very end here. But the psalmist now changes his prayer from asking God to help him behave uprightly to now asking for protection from those that would come against him. And he says, show thy marvelous loving kindness, O thou that savest by thy right hand them which put their trust in thee from those that rise up against them. And uh, there's a couple of things I want to bring out here at the right at the very beginning. He starts off with this word show. Uh, and I would say this, this is not a prayer of David not knowing the marvelous goodness of the Lord. That's not what he means. It's not because he can't see. All right, so when, he, when he's praying here, he's saying, Lord, I need you to show me these things. He's not saying I need to see them because I don't see them. What his is, what is implication here is, these are certainly things the psalmist knows exist because he's asking God to show them to him. The idea here is, He's saying, Lord, I need to be reminded of them continuously. I, I need these things to be evident in my life continuously. And, and the reason for that is because we as humans are so prone to having our faith shaken. We are so quick to have our faith weakened in times of turmoil, in times of distress especially. We get our eyes on the problems and on the oppression and on the circumstances and it's so easy for us, and we're so prone to take our eyes off of God. I'm reminded so often when I read of this, uh, the, the wonderful story in the Scriptures in the New Testament, that we use quite often to illustrate a point like this. And that's the point when Jesus was walking on the tempestuous sea. And he tells Peter to come and walk out on the water with him, you remember? And how he gets out of the boat. And uh, then he begins to sink. And he cries out to God, and God, uh, Christ... Uh, uh, kind of chastens him a little bit uh, for taking his eyes off of him. And, and But, you know, before we get too critical of Peter, uh, he is the only other person besides the Lord Jesus Christ to ever walk on water. And yes, while his faith did get shaken, I'm not sure I would have had the faith to step out of the boat before I become too critical of him. I would like to think I would. But the truth is, when we get our eyes on that which is around us more than we do on that which 
uh, on the one that controls that, that which is around us, how often our faith is shrink, shrinks and, and is, is uh, shaken. And so as the psalmist gets here, I don't want you to get the idea that the psalmist had not seen the marvelous loving kindness of God. He was saying, Lord, I need to be reminded of it constantly. I need you to make it apparent to me. I need you to show it to me. And so as he gets to verse 7, he says, show thy marvelous loving kindness. By the way, loving kindness, think about this for a moment. And I know we know that the loving kindness of God is often God uh, withholding or restraining his hand of judgment for a period. He's long-suffering. He's uh, this, this idea of uh, loving kindness towards men. Have you ever understood this, that the loving kindness of God is a direct fruit of His grace? God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And the reason that He has lingered and given time of grace from the time of Calvary till present day is because of His grace, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. To give man time to do this. And the, the long-suffering, the, the loving kindness of God, His restraining His hand of judgment for the time being, is nothing more than the fruit of His grace. And so when the psalmist is speaking here of the loving kindness of God, and he says, Lord, I need to see this, and I need to see it regularly, I need to be reminded of it all the time, he says, show uh, that marvelous, marvelous, Loving kindness. Isn't the grace of God? Isn't the loving kindness of God? Isn't the long suffering of God and the mercy of God? Isn't that marvelous in our eyes? Something that we're amazed by? Uh, the character, the very, the very fact that God is a holy and a just God and cannot stand sin and yet uh, is allowing us as sinners to experience His grace and long suffering when we do that which is so appalling to Him. It's marvelous. It's marvelous in His faithfulness to us. It's marvelous in His unchangeableness in it. The idea that it is marvelous above all the works that it does and accomplishes in our life. I don't think we ever ought to get over the idea of God's loving kindness, His grace, His long-suffering. We sing the song, Marvelous grace of Jesus, deeper than all my sin. Wonderful grace of Jesus, deeper than all my sin. Higher than the mountain. Sparkling like a fountain, all sufficient grace for even me. And it's marvelous. Something well to rejoice in. And as our faith begins to wane in times of oppression, in times when we feel like God's presence is not near, we simply need to say, Lord, show it to me again. I need to be reminded again of your loving kindness, your grace, your love for me. And so he says, show thy marvelous loving kindness, O thou that savest by thy right hand. I like this phrase. He saves by his right hand. Have you ever thought of that? The right hand is one of those things in Scripture that was always referred to as the strong arm, uh, the, the most pre- the, 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 the best that there is. And God doesn't just give us a token of his protection in times of oppression. But the psalmist prays and he asks for the Lord to show him his wonderful loving kindness. O thou that savest by thy right hand. My right hand. It's interesting that he's wanting God to remove the doubts of his mind. He's wanting God to, to give him gratitude in his heart and to strengthen his faith and to, and to, and to confirm 
by past experience that his faithfulness is going to be there. And as he's reminded of all of these things, he says, Oh, thou that savest by thy right hand. And then the psalmist goes on to say this in verse 7. Them which put their trust in thee, from whom... uh, uh, I'm sorry, let me start verse 7. So thy marveling loving kindness, O thou that savest by thy right hand. He's given the the idea or the, the title of the fact that he's the one that saves. Now we can stand here today and say Jesus saves, Jesus saves, and we can amen that. And when we mean that, we mean that he saves us from our sins and gives us a home in heaven for eternity. But the context of the psalmist is not just that he has saved him spiritually, but that he has also saved him from those that would oppress him. That there is a protective hand of God that is given to him this side of heaven. That there is a sheltering that takes place here. And it says that he does so by his right hand. The best, the most glorious part of the strength of God is vested in his right hand. And that this best of strength and that the greatest part of God's defense is given to him. He is not only present in saving us today for our salvation and giving us a home in heaven for all of eternity. But I want you to understand this. He is also consistent in that saving grace. We don't gain and lose our salvation off and on. We don't have just God's protective hand upon us time here and a time there. It is a consistent and a perpetual salvation that he's noted for here and verse number seven he says O thou that savest by thy right hand them which put their trust in thee from who uh, from those that rise up against them so those that put their trust in him that seek to god to be delivered from them that, that oppose him god is strong to do so he does so with his right hand the most strong the most glorious part of his strength as we get to verse number eight he says Keep me as the apple of thine eye. Hide me under the shadow of thy wings. And the apple of the eye is the most tender, the most... Have you ever thought about this? Uh, our eye, when it comes to the eye of the body, is one of the most tender... You ever get a little splinter in your eye? I mean, that thing hurts worse. A little grain of sand will make that thing hurt worse than anything. You can have all kinds of other injuries... And probably not, not annoy you and be as, as dreadful as getting something in your eye. And then to think about how, how sensitive the eye is. Um, I've got sensitive eyes. When I go to get my uh, eyes checked, they every once in a while I have to put drops in them to dilate them. And I've been in the office where they've used a half a bottle trying to get a drop in my eye. Because by the time the drop leaves the bottle a quarter inch away and gets to my eye, my eyelid is already shut. And I'm not kidding. We got to the point where we finally came up with a system where I have to close my eye. They have to put the drop on the lid at the seal. And then I have to open my eye and let it fall in. Because my eye is that sensitive. It's so protective of, of that eye. And, and this is the, the, the whole concept here of these next few verses. is speaking here of the psalmist praying for God's protective hand against him. And it's interesting that he uses this phrase, keep me as the apple of thine eye. Uh, the idea that uh, uh, that there's a uh, a protectiveness of the eye that is that is so so strong and so immediate and so intense. I was reading one fellow and he said it's interesting that not only has God bathed it with fluid that uh, it keeps it clean and washes it, but then he's given an eyelid to come and protect it and an eyelash to block the light and an eyebrow. And he talks about the bone structure around it and how this eye is such a a, a sensitive thing and a precious thing. 
And isn't it amazing that when it talks about God's protection, that this is the phrase David uses. And I know that we use this phrase to mean that we uh, have the, uh, uh, that, that God uh, cherishes us or loves us or longs for us like the apple of his eye. That's a, that's a word that is used, a phrase that is used. But, but understand where that word came from. The eye was a very special thing, and that's how that, that phrase even came into use. Keep me as the apple of thine eye and hide me under the shadow of thy wing. The wings of God will shield us from the evil that comes. He will continue to uh, comfort us in those wings. And so the psalmist says, as you would do with these, do thou with me. Keep me under your wings. Keep me as the apple of thine eye. Verse number 9, from the wicked that oppress me. From my daily, I'm sorry, deadly enemies who compass me about. These are the ones that he's asking deliverance from. And I want you to notice a couple things about this. First of all, uh, he gives the idea of these enemies compassing him. The, the word compassing means to encircle. And there was a, a tactic, a military tactic, that they still use to this day to some degree. But uh, in the old days especially, they would... Uh, oftentimes, rather than lose men in battle by fighting hand-to-hand, uh, an army would come and they would surround the city and they would compass the city around and they would cut the city off. And basically, they would set siege to the city and they would starve them out. They would cut off their water supply. They would cut off their food supply. And, and the idea being that the psalmist, when he says about these oppressors that compass him around, he felt like everywhere he turned, these people were against him. And there was no relief. There was no place he could turn where there was not someone that oppressed him. And the only place he had to look at at times like this, and I think it would do us well to think of the same, that when we are compassed about and there seems to be no way out, the only way we have to look is up. And we must seek to God. And he comes to God in verse number 9. He says, For the wicked that oppress me from my deadly enemies. And I want you to understand this. These weren't just men that were speaking ill and hurting David's feelings. When David spoke of being oppressed, he was speaking of those that were seeking for his life. They were seeking to destroy him. By the way, we have one that's seeking to destroy us, don't we? The Bible speaks of him. He's as a roaring lion. In fact, we're going to see that here in the next verse where it's even going to be brought up about the idea of a lion and how they come after him. We have one that's out to destroy us. And can I tell you this? He's not just out to destroy your soul. He's out to destroy your life. He's bent on it. And so the psalmist is praying and asking God to deliver from those that would encompass him and that would compass around him. Those that were his deadly enemies that were, were hungering and thirsting. And nothing would satisfy them more than to see David dead. So our foes are mortal enemies. We have one that's walking about trying to destroy our faith. We have some that are trying to destroy our life. It's wonderful if we can ever get to the place where we can live with this understanding in mind. That even though our daily, our daily position is a very precarious position with those that would destroy us. That we have protection from God that we can rest in. I don't know about you, but as I look at how bad this world gets, and I look at the oppression of this world, and I see all of the efforts that Satan is doing to destroy Christian people, 
it's easy for our hearts to become uh, fearful, perhaps anxious. It's easy for us to get to the place of discouragement. Unless we can be reminded that we have a God that is greater than he that is in this world. We have one that defends us. We have one that protects us. And as the psalmist cried out in verse number 7, Show me. Show me, Lord. It's not that I don't know them. It's not because I can't see them. It's that I need to be reminded daily of them. My marvelous loving kindness. So we get to verse number 10. Notice the Bible says they are enclosed in their own fat. With their mouth they speak proudly. By the way, uh, it's interesting how prideful those that oppose God are in their own minds. You ever notice that? That there is a pride that comes and with that pride comes vanity in their lives. I want you to hold your place here for a minute. I, I, I came across something as I was studying this passage, uh, and I wanted to share it with you. In the book of Ezekiel, we're going to come back, but let's turn over to the book of Ezekiel. Something I, I, I'm sure I've read because I've read through Ezekiel before, but it didn't jump out at me and, and really catch my attention until I read somebody that used this verse in relation to this particular psalm we're studying. And as I looked at that, I thought, boy, there's something to that. In Ezekiel chapter number 16, uh, God is coming by way of the prophet Ezekiel to, uh, uh, to uh, the Israelites because uh, of how they were not being faithful to him. And, and there's a lot of things that are going on here. And as we get to Ezekiel chapter 16, look down about verse number 48 with me, if you will. 48. In fact, let's, I'm going to back up just a little bit. Let's go to verse number 44. All right, let's go to verse number 44. Just so we get the context. Behold, everyone that useth Proverbs shall use this proverb against thee, saying, As is the mother, so is her daughter. Thou art thy mother's daughter, and that loveth her husband and her children. Thou art the sister of thy sisters, which loatheth their husbands and their children. And your mother was an Hittite, and your father an Amorite. So he's using here an, an illustration, if you will. All right, He's using a proverb. And he's saying, as the mother is, so are the, the daughters, so are the sisters. You've gone after these strange countries, and you're reaping the consequences of your idolatrous and uh, the fact that you have forsaken me as your God. So this is the proverb. And he said, you're going to be known by that which you've produced and, and part of it. Now, with that in mind, that proverb in mind, now let's look at verse number 46 and some of the verbiage that's used in verses 46, 47, and 48 will make better sense to us. And thine elder sister, now speaking here of Israel, all right, thine elder sister is who? Was Samaria ever supposed to be Israel's elder sister? There was supposed to be a separation there, wasn't there? Thine elder sister is Samaria, she and her daughters that dwelt at thy left hand, and the younger sister that dwelleth at thy right hand is what? Sodom? Sodom is the younger sister that dwelleth at the right hand of Israel in this analogy that Christ is giving or that God is giving this this proverb. He's referring to the fact that Sodom is uh, is part of this idea of of Israel's condition and her daughters. Now notice what he says in verse 47. Yet hast thou not walked after their ways nor done after their abominations, but as if that were a very little thing, thou wast corrupted. What's the next word here? More 
than they in all thy ways. Now we look at Sodom and the first thing that comes to mind is how vile and wicked Sodom was in its, in its uh, idea of homosexuality and the, the vileness and the abomination of sinful practices that were going on in Sodom. But I want you to know what God says the biggest sins of Sodom were. Look what he says in verse number 48. He says, As I live, saith the Lord God, Sodom thy sister hath not done, nor she nor her daughters, as thou hast done, thou and thy daughters. In other words, Sodom didn't even do what you guys have done. Behold, this was there was the iniquity of thy sister Sodom. Here's their iniquity that God said. Pride, fullness of bread, and abundance of idleness was in her. And in her daughters, neither did she strengthen the hand of the poor and needy. There certainly was the fruit of these things that God just spoke about portrayed in the vileness and the abomination of that homosexual movement in the, uh, in the city of Sodom. <coughs> and I'm not trying to downplay that sin. But it was not the source. That was the fruit. The source was the fact that they were proud. They were, they were increased in their goods. They were abundant in their things. They were slothful. They were lazy. And it led to some things. Now as we come back to Psalm 17 for a minute and verse number 9. I'm sorry, verse number 10. These wicked people that are oppressing David, notice what they are characterized as. They are enclosed in their own fat. They're prideful. They're self-sufficient. They're gloating. They're, They're living large. With their mouth, they speak proudly. They have a love of their own selves. They have a, a love of their own ways. And they, they, they not only pride themselves in what they do, they glorify it. I've said so often before that in my lifetime I've watched in our society as sin, I mean horrible sin, sin that would not have even been mentioned among God's people or in the house of God uh, years ago when I was a kid, is now openly accepted in the house of God as a normal thing. And it's not only accepted, but now we're at the place where we're even celebrating and honoring it. Why? Because there's been pride. Because there's been some, some, some uh, enjoyment in their own fat and clothes in their own fat and speaking proudly of things. The prosperity and vanity of the wicked often go hand in hand. <clears throat> I say that and I don't want you to miss this phrase. The prosperity and vanity often go hand in hand. Why do we need to be so careful of that? It's a warning to you and I as God's people today. Because one of the things that we have to admit to today in our, in our country that we live in is that we are a very prosperous people. And if we are not careful, it will lead to vanity. If we're not careful, it will lead to taking that which is good and calling it evil. It will lead us to go away from God's Word as our authority for moral center. Moral foundation, moral authority. And look to ourselves in our prosperity. It will bring about a vanity that will cause us to fall into the trap of these ungodly men that were compassing David. Why? Because they were enclosed in their own fat. They were speaking proudly. And this this affluence, this prosperity, this, this pridefulness led to vanity. When you get to this place, you say, well, 
Pastor, I don't understand why that would be or how that would be. But think about this. When are the times in our lives that we most fervently come to God with our needs? Is it when everything is going great and we have everything we need? No. The most fervent times we come to God in need and say, Lord, I have need of you and I, I, I'm pleading with you and I, I need your help is when we are in need. And so the reverse of this is true. And this is the caution that I give to God's people today is this. When prosperous times come, you and I of all people need to sit up and take very careful care of it. That we are just as dependent upon God for our daily sustenance and our daily needs as we were when we were in times of need. That we not get to this place of self-sufficiency and self-pride. But that we are just as dependent upon Him. I Sometimes people ask me what kind of church we are and I tell them, I, I say we're a Baptist church. They'll say, well, what kind of Baptist? Because there's about 20 different kinds out there. I'll say we are an independent Baptist. And I, and I know what we mean by that. We're not associated with another association. But I heard one preacher say this one time and I like what he said. I, he said, I would really rather say that I am a dependent Baptist. Because the truth is, I depend upon God every single day. It is not without Him that we can even exist and have our being. That doesn't mean that we're tied to an association. But may God deliver us from self-sufficiency, of being so prosperous that we have need of nothing. We don't come to Him the way we used to. As we get to verse number 11, He says, They have now compassed us in our steps. They have set their eyes bowing down to the earth. <coughs> it's interesting in verse number 11 that the fury of the foe is not against just one believer. Notice what he says here, even though this is David's prayer in verse 11. He says, they have now compassed, what's the next two-letter word there? Us. He's not praying just for himself. He's praying for all those that trust in him. For all those that are going through oppression. And by the way, understand that the fury of that foe is never against just one Christian. It's always against all Christians and those that would believe. They're all compassed about. And then it says that he lowers his head. And I was kind of puzzled by this. I thought that's kind of an odd way to word that. And I read one commentator and I like what he said. And if you agree with it, you can take it and use it. And maybe it will be a help to you. But it says this. He says, it says as, uh, in verse number 11, they have set their eyes bowing down to the earth. And he gave the idea that when a, when, a, when a bull or an animal is getting ready to charge and do harm, that they lower their heads and they, they're, they're scuffing their feet and they're, they're preparing for the onslaught, if you will. I thought, boy, what a, that's probably a good indication of this. I'm not positive that that's the full implication theologically of what that phrase means. But it certainly fits the occasion, doesn't it? That they've bowed down, their eyes bowing down to the earth, these, these ones that are oppressing. They've set their eyes bowing down to the earth. Verse 12, like as a lion, there we go, that is greedy of his prey. And as it were, a young lion lurking in secret places. Satan certainly is known as a roaring lion. He exerts all of his cunning, all of his deceit, all of his strength, all of his craftiness. I heard one fellow say it this way. He says, he said, he spares no effort. Satan spares no effort in the destruction of a Christian. He spares no effort. I don't want us to get the idea that uh, Satan, Satan certainly has some power and he has some ability out there. 
I don't ever want us to get to the idea that Satan just comes out here and he, he takes a shot at. He takes a shot at this and he takes a shot at that. Satan is bent on it. Satan gives all his effort, all of his focus. There's not a moment of, of consciousness in the heart and the mind of Satan that he is not bent on the destruction of God's people. Every fiber of his being is against God. And I don't know if we take him serious enough sometimes. I, I think we think that he's a lot like we are. That he'll give it the old college try, and if he doesn't succeed, he'll give up. But Satan's trying his hardest. He's doing everything he can. He's pulling out all the stops. There's something as we get to this passage when it speaks in verse number 12 that this lion, notice it says here, that is what? Greedy of his prey. He's bent on it. He's not going to let anybody else come and steal it from him. He's going to pursue after it. And there's going to come no level of exertion or exhaustion that's going to cause him to stop. He's greedy of his prey. And as it were, a young lion lurking in secret places. There's a couple things to keep in mind. There's no doubt that by the implication of this verse and this chapter, the psalmist is expressing the fact that this oppressor, this lion, this one that's coming after him like a lion, that this oppressor is, is going to have perhaps more strength and more drive and more resolve than I do to resist it, that I am in need of protection. I cannot withstand this enemy. They can pass me about. They're stronger than I am. They're more than I am. And so I have to recognize in this prayer my need. I have to recognize my need. I'm fearful sometimes as God's people. We feel like, God, I can handle this part of my life. And I know Satan's trying to do this in my life, but I'll call you if I need you. I'm okay right now. No, no. We need to come to Him and say, Lord, I need Thee every hour. Every hour. I must have You. And then I think it does us well to remember this. The Lord is my shepherd. He is my shepherd. And while I may be a weak sheep, and according to Isaiah 53, all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. We're weak. We're in need of a leader. We're in need of a shepherd. And I'm thankful that we can be reminded when we read a verse like this that while the lion may be out there trying to destroy us, we have a great shepherd. We have a great shepherd. Arise, and this leads him to verse number 13. Arise, O Lord, disappoint him, cast him down, deliver my soul from the wicked, which is thy sword. We're going to end here, and I'll, I'll finish the last two words, uh, two verses next week, and we'll go on into chapter 18 next week. But I'm going to end here. There's three things that, that are spoken of here in verse number 14. Uh, I'm sorry, verse number 13. First of all, I, I want you to understand that when the psalmist prays arise, and we've talked about this before, he's not saying that God is not aware of these things. God, God oftentimes will uh, wait on, on accomplishing something in our lives for various reasons. Sometimes it's to test us and to, prove, uh, to, to see if we'll come to Him, to draw us closer to Him. Uh, sometimes He's giving the enemy grace and giving them time to repent and being long-suffering to them. But the psalmist now is saying, Lord, okay, the time to wait's done. I need you to go ahead and rise, if you will. And I don't think it's anything wrong with you and I to go ahead and say, Lord, I sure wish you'd go ahead and do it. It's no different than oftentimes when I'm praying, Lord, I sure am ready for the rapture. I could it just go ahead and come now? I know he's waiting. I know it's within his perfect timing. I don't think there's anything wrong at all with saying, Lord, arise now. It's time. 
Let's go, I'm waiting for it, I'm longing for it. It expresses our heart's desire to see Him move on our behalf. And so He does this from this kind of a heart. Arise, O Lord. And He says three things here. He says, disappoint Him. In other words, I want you to foil the plan before it even begins to be enacted. Uh, Just bring it to naught. Outwitting. Disappoint the, 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 the enemy. Then He says, cast Him down. Cast Him down. When He comes to attack, when He comes to bring His... His full brunt of His onslaught against me. Lord, I want you to bring Him to His knees. I want you to cast Him down and have Him bow before you. And then He says, I want you to deliver my soul. Deliver my soul from the wicked, which is thy sword. You say, Lord, I need to be able to rest in the safety that you bring to me. And so, three things we've looked at so far. David prays for justice against his oppressors. He prays for right actions in his own life as he responds to them. Thirdly, he's praying for deliverance of them. And the next week we're going to see the final chapter of this, or final section of this psalm. And we won't be but just a few minutes on it next week, and then we'll go on into chapter 18 and finish. 18 is not nearly as long. Uh, 17 was a rather lengthy chapter, had a lot in it. Uh, So we'll finish up the next two verses next week. And go ahead and try to finish up all of chapter 18 next, next week as well. Let's go ahead and stand together and we'll be dismissed. Father, we're thankful for your word. We pray that you'll bless it once again to help us to become more of what we should be. And Lord, may it, may it grab root.